This is Financial Fitness, episode nine. Guys, I got to sit down with the two co-founders of Carlipso, Nicholas and Christopher. Hey, take a listen. Business in the financing space, actually. Yeah. And ended up selling all our classmates' cars. Everybody left the area. They needed to get rid of their cars, knew that we were working on something in the space. And so we ended up selling their cars on Craigslist and thought we could create a much better experience than Craigslist itself. Yeah. Um, a bunch of our professors and lecturers approached us and said, hey, you, you should solve that problem. It's clearly a messy market. Um, we, we're we basically like, we stumbled into starting this company. Uh-huh. Um, at some point we thought, okay, maybe you raise a little bit of money, maybe $300,000 would help us to run this for two years and learn. But then yeah. like miraculously, we ended up with $1.2 million nice. uh, from our professors, which was nice. We decided to go through Y Combinator, which is the startup accelerator. Mm-hmm. It's very famous here in the Bay Area. Um, pivoted a little bit because if you, if you help two private parties transact on a car, you, you have two very different interests. Mm-hmm. Seller wants to get the most, buyer wants to be like, wants to haggle yeah. and get a oh, lower price. And then you, you basically set yourself up to disappoint both of your customers. Mm-hmm. And so we, we pivoted away from that model and took uh, working with institutions, yeah. so much less, much less rational around their inventory and started selling that inventory straight to consumers, which worked really well. Okay. Nice. No. And then uh, at that point, when that got some traction, we raised, I think, well, in total, we raised $10 million of venture funding, ran the business from 2015 to 17 in that model, and then realized that we'd, we'd build really valuable technology, okay. but scaling the physical part of like, of like these warehouses where we produce and recondition these cars nationwide became like a big undertaking. Mm-hmm. And we knew of Carvana, a company that was doing really well, um, that had solved that problem in a very smart and clever way. And so instead of raising more money, we started talking to the executives there and quickly realized, hey, why don't we just combine the efforts, bring all our team on board to Carvana, um, join, the, join the bigger company and then use our technology in a much much higher leverage way, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And so that worked out really well for, for us and hopefully for the company too. We feel mm-hmm. really good about our contributions there. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was reading back the article once I started Googling you guys and looking it up. Um, kind of a short turnaround from 2013 and 2017, uh, joining on from there. So kind of, you know, both of you guys and your experience kind of go into that and tell me what, what kind of led to that partnership um, from there. Yeah, it certainly didn't feel short. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> like, I, I think part of the thing is when you know when you're building a business, you, you don't you especially a venture back business, you sort of want to be successful overnight. That's part of this mentality that you have, and so you sort of do everything every minute, expecting it to pay off in as short a time horizon as possible. Like looking back, these things obviously just take a long time to build, but you have to remember, like we went down the wrong road a number of times. Mm-hmm. And so when we first started the business in 2013, we were a peer-to-peer car selling service. Mm-hmm. And we did that for almost 18 months before realizing that that was a total waste of time. And so we basically restarted the business almost from its entirety after 18 months. Like it was, mm-hmm. it was in the car space, but it had nothing to do with any infrastructure that we built up. It was only built up from like the tangential knowledge that we had. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we sort of built and destroyed a business in 18 months. And then the, the next cycle is not totally dissimilar. We built a business that was a viable business. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't a venture scale business at that point. And so we had this uh, model where we were selling cars direct from auction to consumer. 
And that worked, but it didn't work enough of the time that you could expand it to an unlimited scale. Oh, wow. And so, in other words, we would, let's say, for at any given, you know, auction infrastructure, any given market like San Francisco, there may have only been 100 to 200 customers in San Francisco who felt like this was a model that, that made sense to them, that you could reach in a cost-effective way and still make money. And so we kept trying to put more fuel on this fire, and every every next unit was never as good as the last one. And so, like, you found this you found this line where you had either had to be willing to destroy your own margins or implement work, which was totally unknown and we couldn't figure out. And, you know, so, so we sort of got to that point where we had figured out a lot about the technology of the space to figure out how to scale this business, but ultimately a model that couldn't be scaled. And so that's where, that's where the conversations with Carvana became interesting because we had, we had a technology that could describe VINs very well. So in other words, like no one had really faced the problem of selling cars purely online because somebody saw the advertisements, but once they got in, they could sort of kick the tires and confirm everything. And then they would walk, they would write a check or they wouldn't no. for us. They sort of committed to writing a check based on everything we told them. So if we were wrong, That's we either got, you, you know, the, the, all the, all the fault was on us mm-hmm. in reality. And so we had to figure out how to be highly confident not only for our own sake and to not lose money, but so that the people selling cars for us could be highly confident too and say, I guarantee you when this car arrives, we know it's going to be in good condition and we know that it's got these three packages that are important to you. I thought that was the, I thought that was huge. Uh, when I was reading more on the article as well, like when you guys were scaling down, well, when you guys were doing way faster processes, 200 cars in a day. Uh, I take, for example, 2015, I bought my first bought my first car in my own name. So, you know, we have a mechanic, um, things that we do, we go get that tested out. That's our comfortability. That tr- talk about that trust factor. Well, like you said, it fell back on you if those cars didn't come back and do well. You see online right. all the time, like good deal on cars.com or um, even with Carvana slowly coming into play. And at first, you know, it was very different. I just remember looking at like, why would I want to buy a car online and have it shipped to me? And, you know, I get to test it out for seven days. But, you know, to me, I'm like, I have to see it. But then as the way, like you said, now you look at the wave of the future, you look at things impacting. And now Corona, of course, I want my car to be delivered to me. And then I have a seven day return policy. Kind of like go into detail about how you guys were able to come up with that process of inspecting the cars, getting a good um, estimate on them, getting a good return and getting a great deal for the value of them. So, I mean, we should distinguish between what we did before we joined Carvana yeah. and what Carvana did. Very true. Carvana started out with a conviction they were right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So they did a really, really good job. Our business was slightly differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, different. We, we didn't have inventory. We never wanted to take cars in inventory. We yeah. thought the key to success as a startup is to not have thousands of cars in inventory. No, with hindsight, that's wrong. But at the time, that's what we thought. Mm-hmm. And so what we needed to become really good at is know, A, the condition of the car and the features, packages, and trim of a vehicle without even seeing the car. And when we talked to the institutions selling these vehicles, in the beginning, we just trusted what they told us. But in reality, they also didn't know their own cars because they have thousands of those. Mm-hmm. And so we made a few mistakes in the beginning where we delivered cars to customers. Somebody was looking forward to that pickup camera and the third row seats and their BMW X3 or be it, be it one of these, these issues. And so we had this, like we felt firsthand what happened if we misdescribed these cars. And so we 
we had to build technology that avoided mistakes. And that's something Carvana was growing to a scale where that technology became really valuable for mm-hmm. them. And so that's why the match was so good. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and so back to where you said you went down the road 18, 18 months ago, 18 months, you guys were going down the wrong road. Uh, kind of describe yeah. like for a beginner business or a beginner investor or anything like when you guys were getting started in that process, kind of talk about. Like not necessarily the bumps and bruises, but like kind of like a struggle that a new business venture would go through, uh, such as you guys went through. I, I, th- I think it's a lot harder to know you're getting it wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it sounds obvious when we say it in retrospect. Yeah. I think it's really hard when you're in the minute of it. And it really can't, it, we, we sort of only realized or only sort of gave ourselves permission to try something else once we had a conversation with an advisor. And so, let me tell you a little about the confused signals that mm-hmm. exist. So it's not as though we sold nothing and no one was happy. Mm-hmm. There was certainly a subset of customers where we'd do this peer-to-peer model and things seemed to work out easily. We just couldn't find them effectively. And we sort of said, okay, if we know we can make some people happy, can we just find these people somehow? And so we sort of tried everything to find these people. And, you, you know, once you reach idea number 102, yeah. it's probably not as good an idea as, idea number 10, for example. And so we had sort of got to idea number 102 and we're trying to scale this business. And furthermore, everything we try and do to scale the business doesn't work either. So part of the theory was, hey, it could be really hard in the beginning, but maybe we'll do things that don't scale in the beginning and we'll figure out how to scale them as we try and get more volume because unless you find value, scaling sort of doesn't matter. So let's find value and then let it scale. Well, part of the issue with that is that everything we did didn't scale. And so there was no, like, you don't get the benefits of a tech business if if the next marginal unit is equal in labor. It's just like, a, I mean, it's like doing anything. It's like doing any job task that has value at that point. And so it wasn't really a tech business at that point, and it wouldn't, wouldn't have been a venture model. You sort of need to hire N number of people and all our ingoing assumptions that assume that we'd get efficiency. But, like, I think part of our naivety there was, like, hey, we could educate consumers, and consumers would eventually care about this. Like they would know that it's okay to test drive without a person there. They would become more familiar with our brand, et cetera, et cetera. But none of the, we, we, we couldn't even begin to approach at scale. And every conversation had to be very, very conversation heavy. And you got no benefit from having N minus one conversations because almost every single time you ran into a new person, they had a new unique set of concerns. And there was no way of assuaging that in materials. They wouldn't read or consume enough. You sort of had to have a person guide them through that. And so that became... Like the time that we had hoped to save effectively went out the window and just went into a new bucket that we hadn't really thought about. Mm. And so like the breaking point came when we went to Y Combinator, we scaled up the business forcibly saying, okay, let's just shove everything we can through this door. And so we shoved everything we could through the door. And one of our employees who was handling a lot of this basically came to a breaking point where he's like, I'm not like, I'm not doing this. Like, this is not, shoving everything the door, like more is just more for me and there's no way this is going to work. And so we just kept banging our heads against the wall, wondering if there's some, like we went to a bunch of industry conferences, even wondering if there's just, if we're just dumb and we're just missing something that everybody else knows or not. And you go there and you sort of hear all these promising ideas and then you sort of talk to everybody and get two steps deeper and it wasn't that we hadn't figured anything out. It was actually, we tried all these things before. And so we sort of got to the end of our list and said, 
we're really at a loss of how to scale this in an effective way and talked to an advisor who basically said, Look, I didn't try and fund you guys so you can hate your lives. So like, either figure out how to make it work or figure out how to do something that you think can work that you've learned from doing this. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we ended up sort of taking a step back. Chris, Chris actually said something really interesting. Your other question was, what's your advice for young entrepreneur who wants to start a business, for example? You never have all the answers up front. Yeah. If you had all the answers, somebody else would have already done it. So the best best way to start a company is to actually just start a company and do something. Like have a conviction, a conviction, a space you're excited about. Try to solve problems. You, whatever your convictions are on day one are going to be wrong. Yeah. But what it forces you to do is talk to customers. Once you talk to customers, they'll tell you, I don't want what you have. I wish you had that. And you're like, oh, so if I give you this, would you pay for it? They're like, oh, actually, no, I wouldn't pay for it. I would pay for that. But like, if I give you that, yeah, then I'll pay for it. And all of a sudden, you know what customers want. And so if, if you, you have this dilemma of getting, having to get started, but not knowing which direction to go, you just need to trust the process because customers will tell you what, what they want. And in, in our case, I guess, if, if, with hindsight, we, we, we pivoted long enough to find something that's valuable to someone. In our case, it was software to another company. And not origin, like not what we originally intended to do is selling mm-hmm. cars, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like event, the hustle started in the beginning. Like you said, you guys were doing that. Yeah. Friends, coworkers, however it was. It's kind of like similar to how I got started with this. Uh, I didn't I'm really sure understand uh, financial. I understood financial literacy, but I didn't understand it until I was in a hole. I didn't understand it until I was too late. So back to your, you guys, where you saying where you began in the very beginning. It's just like I began and you just continue to go. Run into a wall, figure out how to get over it, get around it, run into the next thing. It's not that problems seem to arise as you guys are talking about, but there are a lot of hurdles in the process. And it just, you just have to remind yourself to stay consistent because if you solve one customer's needs, there's another customer's needs that's not going to be as, exci- or as excited about it. Kind of talk about the difference that you ran into with a bunch of different customers in the beginning versus I'm happy with this, but this could have been better, like you were just stating. We, so one insight that we have, it's not exactly answering a question, but I think it's a good example mm-hmm. of how you just need to hustle and do something to learn something. Mm-hmm. When, when we got in the space, like the prime motivation was to sell cars. That's mm-hmm. what we did. And then we realized, well, this is a very low margin business. And if you look around, all the dealerships make their money on these incremental products like referrals for financing or protection plans. Um, so we started selling those two because that was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And then we gained this insight. And that's actually almost, yeah, basically three years ago that we were incentivized to give loans to customers that weren't the best loans for the customer, mm-hmm. but instead that were loans that paid us the highest referral fee. So if you come buy a car, if you have prime credit, it's relatively easy for you to know what your rate should be. If you yeah. don't have prime credit, and yeah. 68% of Americans don't have prime credit, mm-hmm. then you just rely on me telling you, oh, I have a great loan for you. The loan I'm incentivized to give you, however, is not the one that pays you the lowest rate. That's yeah. the one that pays me the highest referral fee. And so we notice oh, there is these incentives are completely misaligned. Like customers are not benefiting from the current process. Yet we're, we have the incentives to do it because we need to like, make money on these vehicles. Mm-hmm. And, and so more than a learning that a customer explicitly expressed to us, we gained this insight that there's a huge opportunity to help customers refinance their auto loans because on day one, they already drive off the lot mm-hmm. with, a, 
with a loan that's marked up. Yeah. That they can refinance and they want and people don't even realize. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so I'm in banking. I didn't tell you like full background. So a lot of what I do is a lot of loans, a lot of lending. Um, and I look at people when they purchase these cars and you look at the value uh, added at the time and it seems great. But in a year with marked depreciation, they would be in a hole in about three or four years. And they've got something that's two, three years old, six, seven years on the payment. And then the next thing they know, they turn around in two or three years, the car is worth less than what they still own. And uh, right. a lot of people would get upside down. Jared, what type of banking do you do? Because I think you're not even seeing the worst cases. Uh, no, I agree. I'm in retail. So it's all, they, yeah. they either go to the dealership or they come to us. It's done on the computer. Uh, we do the application. We put it in. At the bank, you don't even get you get a better rate, of course, at the car dealership. Um, but you, like you said, I'm not seeing all of the worst cases. I'm not seeing no. the people that get the high interest rates that can't even afford the payments, but they need a car, and the payment it's is crazy. The only yeah, interest rates for car loans are by law allowed to be as high as thirty percent. Yeah, and sure. imagine you have a car loan with twenty percent interest. Mm -hmm. Like imagine you start. Imagine you had a solid life. Everything was great. All of a sudden. A pandemic broke out, yeah. or you got divorced, or you had medical bills mm -hmm. unexpected, or you lose your job. Yep. Then you you had you had built this great credit. All of a sudden, situationally, you became bad credit because you couldn't pay your bills. You you defaulted on a credit card payment. So you've done everything in, right in life, but then you're you're forced to accepting a car loan with like with the interest rate of say twenty percent. Yeah. And then you try to rebuild your credit. You make these payments on time. Yet three years later, you're still in an interest rate of twenty percent. Although you've just proven that the situation that drove you to bad credit is resolved, you're bad at big at bad at big at back at six fifty seven hundred credit score, and you're still paying twenty twenty percent interest. That doesn't make any sense. You're not rewarded for being disciplined. Some of the worst things I've seen too in that process is when people get ready to refinance. Um, I always try to advise them at least within a year to refinance as soon as you can, um, and they refinance late. And it's back to it's back to being that upside down payment. So yeah, yep. I really love yeah. where you went with that. Um, it's 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 tough to kind of see the industry in a whole, but at the, it's necessary to have a car wherever you are, at least in the United States, and you know, of course, Very all over the so. world. But uh, here, we just we're a little vicious with it, and. Uh, <laughs> Man, uh, no, that was that was great. That was great. So, uh, funny, we have friends, uh, Jared. This is a funny anecdote. We have friends in France who run an online car dealership as well. Uh -huh. When we told them that, like in the US, people with bad credit get loans, they looked at us like, why would you do that? They just showed that they don't pay and like their their don't make their payments. Why would you give people a loan who haven't been able to pay their last <laughs> like in France it's illegal even. Wow. Um, and so I think that's not the right solution either. People need a chance. Otherwise mm -hmm. nobody gets a chance, right? Mm -hmm. People need to get a credit for their car because otherwise they can't go to work, can't have a job. What what I think is currently not aligned and where we have huge ambitions to try to make a difference is encourage people to refinance if and when they can, save money and then get out of the hole of having a 20% interest car loan. Talk about that wash, rinse, repeat cycle, like you said, once you sold to Carvana. This... You, you asked such a good question at the beginning. <laughs> I did that from 2013 pretty quickly to 2017. Yeah. Those were the f worst four years of my life. <laughs> I was hitting my, Chris and I were both hitting our head against the wall so hard. And we, 
we, we our ambitions were so high the bar was so high our peers were doing so well and we chose to sell cars and then it wasn't working exactly how we wanted to and so you wonder why would you do that to yourself mm -hmm. like if, if you could have a lot of jobs out there very well paying work nine to five nine to six nine to seven but monday to friday instead we chose to work like eight to ten monday to saturday or sunday actually um it, it's probably the most rewarding thing you can do though you create something from scratch you do something that other people either wouldn't have the courage to do or not the opportunity to do so there's some responsibility to do it and then like the best way to have impact is is to build a business that that helps other people and so in, in our case we discovered that personal finance is, is just a little bit messed up in the US and people people are illiterate, like financially illiterate. And so initially our ambition was actually a slightly different one. Our ambition was how do you give people a credit card early in life and then help them build credit? Like we wanted to get people out of bad credit because we're seeing people with bad credit every day. Um, and so when we explored like opportunities or ideas and had a lot of conversation with people, we realized it's really difficult. Like people need to go through the pain of having bad credit to understand that that's something they want to avoid. And so that angle of giving somebody a credit card early in life is probably not the best way to solve the problem. And so we took a step back and asked ourselves, well, how else? And then we got back to the idea we had three years ago. It's like, if we refinance auto loans, we're achieving exactly what we want to achieve. Somebody who's proven that he is disciplined, makes his payments, wants to improve his credit, but that person needs to be rewarded for it and is not rewarded for it by the system right now. Does that make sense? Yeah. Talk. You guys continue to say that rewarding, rewarding for um, you know, for good behavior, for good payments, yeah. for good payment history. You know, the bank rewards you with a better credit card, low interest rates for a certain period of time. Kind of talk about how a reward system or reward payment would work if you guys, you know, were to come up with something like that. Yeah. Really interesting question. Little segue, but it'll make sense in a, in a second. So the currency of Capital One, uh, Richard Fairbank, he was uh, went to Stanford Business School too, mm -hmm. like many years ahead of us. And he looked into data and said, it doesn't make any sense that everybody pays the same interest rate on a credit card. Like there should be a way to tell by behavior and patterns and like early versions of a credit score that somebody is more likely than other people to make payments. So that person should get a lower rate on a credit card. That's totally normal today. Like that was revolutionary back then. It didn't work in the beginning. He couldn't find a bank that would try it. They thought it's crazy, you can't do it. So now we're doing it on credit cards. People who have better credit and are more likely to pay off their credit card and are more credit worthy, get lower rates. So they're being rewarded. In the car space, we have that too in the beginning, but a car loan is like on average probably 60 months. Now they're getting longer and longer, 72, 84 months. And so you're, you're signing up in a snapshot of today, my credit is 650. I'm signing up for a loan at 60, 72, 80 months, but my credit moves, improves over time. And nobody's acknowledging that. Like I'm still making the payments as if I was getting the car loan again three years ago when I had not so great credit. And so that's something that just needs to change. And we believe that has to change. Customers are in loans that they should refinance. We, we were just focused on our core business of selling cars mm -hmm. at first. And then towards the end, when we realized we weren't building a tech business, we were just building an online car mm -hmm. seller, which didn't scale very well. Mm -hmm. That's when we asked ourselves, should we not just become 
auto refinancing company. Mm. Like we had that question, we had that discussion, discussion, but then we realized the software we had built was really valuable. And so we decided to just double down and figuring out a home for the software and the team and ourselves. Because the, the ambition was still there, making a big difference in the car space. Mm-hmm. We just couldn't do it by ourselves and then found a really good partner. How many, um, pe- how many people did you pitch the idea to uh, before it finally fell into the right hands? The software or the auto refinancing idea? Uh, the software. The software. Chris, how many people did we talk to? Probably a handful, but it was really only one company where we felt like this was in a, was a good home for it. We, we, we were good friends and get along very well with the executives at Carvana. And like, we're, we're so happy about what mm-hmm. we've done and, and, and the decision we've made. It just made so much sense. There's other car companies where could have added value. It just wasn't right. Yeah. And so instead of running a process where we talked to a lot of people, we very quickly realized like we get along very well with the people, which is very important too if you if you merge efforts and teams. And so, yeah, th- this is more or less how it played out. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so moving on to the financing aspect of it, at what point were you guys like, okay, no, this isn't going to work for majority of the people trying to finance a vehicle with this or uh, make payments or, you know, kind of get into that aspect of, all right, we want to help people refinance or finance their vehicles through us. We're also looking for inventory, but we're also wanting to move out of that. Kind of go, if that if that makes sense, kind of go into that a little bit. Go ahead, Nikki. Okay, yeah, so let's see. We, so when you sell cars, consumers are just, they're just, programmed that way to try to haggle on vehicles. And so we we always felt the pressure. We needed to be the lowest car. Like we needed to have the lowest prices possible because that's just what consumers want. That's also what we wanted to give them. We then also felt the pressure of we need to make some money somehow. And so then we started working with lenders who allowed us to get like these referrals. Um, But then we also noticed this is not exactly what we wanted to build. Like we wanted to build a company that's good for the consumer. Um, and our car selling experience didn't grow at the, at the, at the rate we wanted it to grow. So we had this dilemma of, of some things working a bit, but nothing working great. And so we, we tabled everything. We focused on the software because we knew that was the valuable at the time in, in parallel, like that, that thought or that conviction that auto refinancing should exist has never really left our, our heads. Like we always talked about, it's like one day somebody should do that and maybe we can start a company that does something like that. And that's that's basically where we are right now. Mm-hmm. We feel like this is a huge opportunity. I think it's the right thing for the country, right thing for Americans, right, right thing for borrowers. And there is no such product that automatically rewards you as a, as a car owner for making your payments. Yeah, that's true. And it's very true. You don't, <laughs> you get a, hey, you made 12 consecutive months on your credit report. And that's, that's really about the end of it. It's crazy. If, yeah. if you compare the two industries, like a very, very analogous industry is mortgages. Mm-hmm. In 2019, 47% of all the funded mortgage applications, 47, were refinances. Mm. So half, basically half of the mortgages that were paid out were to refinance the home. Nobody moved. And the car space in the exact same time frame was 5%. Mm. Now, people just don't know it's possible. Nobody tells them it's possible. 
as so many other things in personal finance. Nobody tells you and teaches you how to use a credit card. No, nope. <laughs> right. Not at all. Yeah. I, I, that's the biggest thing. I harp on my clients all the time. Thirty percent, no more. Yeah, I think the other thing that's interesting about like uh, particularly when you start out on not as good a credit footing for mm -hmm. auto loans too, like you have to remember that your credit score is only a moment in time, mm -hmm. right? And so your loan is issued in a moment in time, but as you change, you would think the loan adapts to how you're either getting better or worse. But a lot of times it doesn't happen because these lend a lot of times the lender makes their money by people who are getting better and paying, subsidizing the other point, which is people who are getting worse. And so obviously you have to have this portfolio and it's got to be priced. But at the same time, if you're one of the ones who's you know doing the good behavior, you should be rewarded for that good behavior at the same time. And so part of the theory here is just we should we should think about ways to help make these things more affordable and reward this good behavior for consumers and look at it more like an ongoing process than sort of a one-time thing. Here's your car, here's your rate, stick with it for four years, and you'll have negative equity at the end. Man, I, so y'all's journey um, in the financial aspect individually, uh, like you said, you do something very well and you don't get rewarded for it. Uh, for financial fitness, what we want to talk about for people is you you have to find a commonality of when I get ready to figure out what I want to do to save money, to get out of debt, to pay off any like situation where I've gotten in that hole. It's the process of, hey, saving money is important. Cash, having cash on hand. I want to make sure that I can be able to make these payments. But you also have people that live above their means. Uh, tell us kind of like a, in y'all's journey, being in college, going through Stanford, like how was it when you guys were coming up and adapting to understanding about your finances, understanding about the credit process, understanding about, you know, the cars and everything that you were looking at. And then Chris, we're going to go into more detail about the types of cars you like. <laughs> Chris, why don't you start? Because you have the classical American experience. My experience is an international, I'm sure, in a second, but it's a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of, uh, like, most things in life, like, I was given a big advantage by having, like, highly financially literate parents. Mm -hmm. And my parents are immigrants, too. So, like, they were always worried about a currency collapse, oddly. Like my parents are from two currency collapse nations, mm -hmm. and so they, uh, at any given point, they're worried about whether the dollar is underlying is itself an underlying good asset. Um, and so, um, like I think the mentality around frugalness and sort of living within your means, I really learned from a very young age more than anything else. Um, and you know, going through college, I certainly saw the other side where people who hadn't had that discipline, you know, first job out of school, they make whatever, 10,000 a year and their car costs the same amount as their annual salary. And they thought it was a perfectly fine financial decision to make. Um, but I, like, I never received any formal education. I, I just had the benefit of, of uh, like habitually learning from others, from my parents mainly who, who had good discipline. My story is slightly differently because I, I come from Germany. Germany yeah. is probably one of the leading countries in terms of savings per capita. Mm -hmm. While in America, the first financial product teenagers get is a credit card. Like, I got a savings account. <laughs> um, the first thing I learned is, here's your pocket money, and here's how, here's how you save. Um, and then credit cards work very differently in Germany. So you, you, 
you can't just put everything on a credit card and then just pay a little bit of margin and then roll over credit from one month to the next. That's not possible. A credit card means you can spend up to a certain amount and the last day in the month, all of that will be subtracted from your account. So it's really just intra-month credit mm -hmm. more than anything else. Mm -hmm. um, when I moved to the US, that was a little bit of a shell shock because first thing I wanted to get is a cell phone and then AT&T looks at me and is like, you don't have any credit history, I can't give you a cell phone. I'm like, what are you talking about? That means I don't have, I've never had debt. That's mm -hmm. a good thing. They're like, mm -hmm. yeah, but how do we know you're going to make your payments? So you need to, you need to put down $500 for a flat rate of, I think like $60 a month. I'm like, how does that even make sense? So that was my first experience with credit. My second experience with credit was when Chris and I were already working in our company. And uh, there was the Fiat release, this, this uh, Fiat 500 electric vehicle lease in California. Um, and they advertised, I think, $1,500 down and $89 a month. Mm -hmm. And Chris is like, we should just get these. So we called the dealerships that will take two. We don't need to test drive them. Um, that confused the dealer a lot because that, that's a very untypical, atypical yeah. behavior. But we were in the car space, so it made sense. So we go there, Chris gets his lease, I uh, sign up, do the credit app, and they're like, okay, so your payment will be $1,200. I'm like, how is that possible? I thought it's 89. Yeah, but you, you don't have any credit. <laughs> and so Chris had a co-sign on my, on my car. He, he became like my significant other in that very moment. <laughs> um, so I could get the payment for $89. And so slowly I understood like the importance of credit. I, I basically took out a $2,000 loan, put it on a savings account uh paid four percent interest on on the loan it took just to build credit yeah. i made those payments in the car and then then the, the opposite crazy thing happened i made payments on my car 89 dollars for six months or 12 months and all of a sudden i could get a hundred thousand dollars at 1.99 yeah um so it's a little crazy but um yeah that was my experience so america as well the student loan debt crisis you guys both went to very prestigious schools, Stanford. Um, that's where you guys met, correct? And then Chris, you had a stint at MIT yeah. as well. Were you? Uh, what did you? What degree did you receive at MIT? Um, chemical engineering. Okay, nice. Well, of course, yeah. I should have known that, but that's what the school was known for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, like so. What uh, me? I went to school and immediately my first two years I played baseball. So. Nick, you oh, just cool. relating to you a little bit in the athletic world, like that. My first two years were paid for. Uh, very fortunate to have, but then I went to a very small school um, after that. And although the scholarship money was a very large amount, there was still another $30,000 that I had to come out of pocket. So now I'm sitting here at this school thinking I only have to go two years, you know, 30000 uh, $30, yeah, $30,000 to pay back over the two year period. But I ended up having to go for a fifth year because some courses didn't transfer over. Next thing you know, you get your degree, you're excited. Six months later, you owe us $65,000 from Fed loan. Wow. <laughs> and I'm sitting here like, this is fantastic. And for being in, being in a state like Mississippi, um, the average salary usually is around forty dollars to $42,000. And a lot of the people that make over that or more of our industry workers doesn't require a degree, um, which is crazy. I go to school, I work hard, I learn a lot, and then I come out in debt with a job that can't even pay off my debt. Kind of talk about like why it's beneficial that education plays an important factor, whether you're getting a degree or just understanding how to kind of pay off debt, 
Uh, I want to start a business. I want to just be have a good foundation under me. You mentioned in Germany, you know, like you guys practice saving very early on. Uh, financial literacy was my, my parents' education on it was you don't need to spend this on it, but never, hey, put it away for a, this time or put it away for that time. I think the education is a huge aspect and then it plays a part as well. When you get ready to go to school, you have classmates, you have people that come from many different backgrounds and cultures. I kind of go into that for you guys. Yeah, let, let me start with that because mm -hmm. Germany is an interesting case where education is for free. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't have any debt from undergrad. Nice. And I went to a very good school. So that obviously encourages really, really good behaviors in Germany where people go to college. It's not preventative. It's you don't have a benefit of having like wealthy parents mm -hmm. or not, not nearly to the same extent as you do in, in the US. Um, so that worked out really nicely. And I think that's really fair. When I came to the US, I came for business school that's still slightly different because a lot of people going to business school or thinking about it, do this mental math. Is that a good return on investment? Mm -hmm. And I don't think you can look at it like that. I think you're going into business school for different reasons than just a higher paycheck later on. Mm -hmm. The higher paycheck, it's just something where you're lucky that you had had the experience and it works out for you and you, you will get a decent job. But I think going to business school and then going out of business school, you actually leave business school with a different responsibility. Now that you have the safety net, the debt is there, but you'll be able to pay for it. But now that you have the saving in it of being able to get a good job, well, now you should take risk and have impact and change the world, right? Now now your your job is to take advantage, take the risk, build businesses that help other people. So that that's my experience. And then the debt will pay for itself for business school. Undergrad is a little bit different because it really matters where you go. It's really unfair in the US, but Chris probably has a different opinion than me or knows more about it. Oh, you can go ahead, Chris. I think is, oh, is there a connection this like again? I know, I know. Chris has loans, and his his wife as well. Both of them mm -hmm. had loans from undergrad. They they actually met at MIT. Mm -hmm. um, both of them got very good jobs out of MIT, but it took them a long time to pay back the debt, and that was that for me. Not having that experience, that was surprising. I think the most important thing is education because it's an investment. Like it'll always pay for itself. You just need to be diligent and make the right decision afterwards. You, you need to try to get out of the debt quickly. Um, you, you shouldn't live beyond your means. So you put your student loan payments at risk. So they, those are my thoughts, but I've never been in the situation. Now Chris is back. Maybe, maybe Chris yeah. can share a couple of thoughts on student debt. I, I mean, I, I... I'm not sure. I think part of the, the downside of student debt is that people can get loans for almost any education. And I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. Like universities are incentivized to charge a lot because and, and to try and help people get more debt. And so you have this like ever increasing cost of college. And if you look at the, the rate of increase to the cost of college, it's gone way up faster than the return on college has. And so like there's a natural break point of when does the cost exceed the return and I think you could argue for a lot of universities out there, you're, you're already there. And so like, I think it's right now, the expectation is an 18 year old that you have to make this sort of value judgment of whether it's worth it or not. And I think it's a really hard place to put someone in who doesn't really understand sort of, I don't, I really don't know what my earnings potential is. I, I might not even know what I want to do. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and so like having the overlay of both of those things early in life is kind of hard. Um, you know, like I said earlier, my, my parents are like uh, immigrants and thought the dollar was going to collapse. And so one thing that was for sure is like, if you, if we're like, if you're going to pay for college or if we're going to help you pay for college, then you need a skill that earns money. So like, don't go in there trying to like explore something new and think about yourself, right? Like, it needs to be something that's immediately employable in demand after you leave. You have a real skill that other people who haven't done this don't have. So it can't be some like general thing. And so, and I think that is a lot of like immigrant mentality too, but. Um, to provide a little context, after business school, we start a company, we raised $1.2 million and Chris's mother calls and says, are you still working on the summer job or summer yeah. project? Or do you already have a job? <laughs> <laughs> oh man it's funny yeah. that story like i I've, I've heard another i think um i don't know what athlete i was watching the documentary on but the same aspect of it and i think um somebody else mentioned it like y'all's aspect we just right uh they, their parents calls like hey mom you know just raised 1.2 million dollars oh that's great do you still have something to fall back on when um you know when that when that's over with or you're done with that and it's like <laughs> Yeah. Wait, do you not see the disconnect? But uh, yeah. no, that's that's there's, extremely important. There's one nuance, Jared, which is interesting. Like, the US is obviously a, a crazy place, and these days even more so. One thing I love about the US, and that that keeps me here, is that you're encouraged to take risks. Like, yeah. you think big, do something. Yeah. Like, people will fund you to do crazy things because you will end up doing crazy things. Germany is actually different there, and. That's probably part of the reason why I'm I'm not spending as much time in Germany. Like if if you try something and it doesn't work out, then you failed. Mm -hmm. Like there's a stigma to failing. There's then you'll have an insolvency, maybe a bankruptcy in a business. Even a business, if it's a limited liability company, like that will reflect poorly on you, and people will not invest in you again. And, and so that that's a shame. Mm -hmm. That's what's really good about the US, especially in like in the Bay Area. Like this is this is how you create future. Like that's how you innovate by giving people a chance and putting capital at risk. But the upside is there if, you, if you're yeah. successful. It totally makes sense. Oh man, man. Um, so I'm gonna stop the re the recording right there. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening all the way through the segment. I also want to give a huge thanks to Nicholas and Christopher, co-founders of Carlipso, coming in and doing this interview on the Zoom call. Guys, we had a really great time, some really great information. Thanks for tuning in and taking a listen. This is Financial Fitness on the Old Fashioned Health Network show. We see you guys next week.